And, uh, you know, we've been in this series on out of order, or another way of discussing it is, is the idea of having disordered loves. Uh, some of you have, some people have made a remark that they've seen scars on my arms. That's not because my wife is beating me. Um, actually, we have a dog now, and uh, we just finished a seven-week dog obedience class with him. Actually, he won, in the class, he won the most improved dog voted by the class, um, but he still has some issues. You see, he's a broken world dog, and uh, so he's got claws that are like stilettos, and um, I, I experience that occasionally. So don't worry, um, he gets what's coming to him. So <laughs> uh, This morning, like I said, we're in this series on disordered loves, and um, because John Kasich has now uh, suspended his campaign, I can share this story that comes out of Christianity Today. Several, several months ago, when Kasich was in a town hall meeting in South Carolina, uh, a young man stood up in the meeting and told him that he'd been in a really dark place for a long time. Apparently, this young man had a father figure in his life who passed away, and his parents at the same time period were going through a divorce. And the man continued, he said, but you know something? I have found hope. I found it in the Lord, and I found it in my friends. But I'd really like to appreciate, I'd really appreciate one of those hugs you've been talking about. If you follow Kasich at all, he talks about the need and giving each other hugs, and he's, he's a hugger. And, and so the man came forward with tears in his eyes, and Kasich walked to him and hugged him. And as they hugged, Kasich said something to him that was private, but was inadvertently picked up on one of the microphones. He didn't tell the young man that he'd bring his father's job back. He didn't tell him that he would get, if he got more involved in politics, he'd find his purpose and meaning in life. He said that this to the man, the Lord will give you strength. If you trust him, I promise you that. Kasich was pointing that young man to a place where he'd find meaning and significance. And that's important in this series on disordered love because what we've been learning over the last few weeks is that all disordered loves are based upon really good things. The first week... BP talked about the family, and God created the family. It's important for us to be invested in our families, but when we make our families the most important thing, it becomes an idol. Or romantic love was the second week. God created romantic love. He celebrates it in the scriptures. And yet when we focus on romantic love as the source for our significance, our hope, and our meaning, it's going to disappoint us. Similarly, money last week, B talked about the fact that God has given us resources. We're to use those for his glory. At the same time, the Bible says that if we fall in love with money, it becomes the root of all kinds of evils that pour out in our lives. So these disordered loves, whether it be anything like our own work or health, even food, if we look to those things for significance or security or hope, they become idols to us. Every disordered love will ultimately fail us, and it will even make us more miserable and less human. Family, love, money, and today we're looking at the disordered love of politics. Um, many people get involved in politics because they assume that this is a way to bring about social and cultural change. As a matter of fact, for this reason is why many Christians have become heavily involved in politics, particularly since 
the late 60s and the early 70s. And there's nothing wrong with wanting cultural and social change until it becomes the focus upon where we place our hope, until it becomes the place where we think we'll find security and meaning. When that happens, politics, like all these other things we've been talking about, becomes an idol. It's interesting to look at the different phrases that the politicians who are remaining in the, in the race are using and have used, and this is typical of politics, and, and the expectations that they build, you know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders, a future to believe in. Do you see that? If, if you elect me, I'll give you this hope, this future to believe in. Or Donald Trump has taken uh, actually a page out of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan used this in 1980. But make America great again. Apparently every 30 or 40 years we have to go through a rotation of making America great again. I don't know. But, but you can... You can get that sense of the fact that if you elect me, I'm going to bring us back to our greatness. You will be happy and fulfilled and significant. Or you look at Hillary Clinton. If you join Hillary for America, you should because it's your time. And I'm going to make sure your needs are met and you are satisfied. It doesn't matter what the ideology is. They're trying to create in you a sense that if you vote for them, your life will find meaning and significance. Now, I am not a cynic. I grew up in Washington, D.C. I grew up with kids whose parents were on the Hill, whose parents were involved in politics. I've worked with kids when I was in youth ministry whose parents were involved and politically involved. I'm not a cynic. I know that there are lots of good people who do lots of good things in Washington, D.C., but I am a realist. And if you place your hope and your dreams in politics, it's inevitable that the idol will disappoint you. Matter of fact, one of the reasons I believe we see this level of anger and frustration right now that's boiling up in our culture is because of the expectations that haven't been met, the disappointments that people are experiencing. Now, before we look at what God has to say and understand what he, how he speaks into this topic, I want us to understand that there are actually two kinds of politics, and both of them can become idols. The first kind of politics can be described as what I call organizational politics. And my clicker isn't getting it up. There it is, organizational politics. Organizational, and, and that may not be the best term for it, but it's, it's any time or any activity in which in an organizational system where people use power, manipulation, or coercion to get what they want. Okay, this is the kind of politics that we despise. This is why politicians generally have such a low rating of approval. This is why, as I was reading in one magazine article, that politics is a dirty word in the church. Because we don't like any idea of people using power or manipulation or coercion to get that, what they want. You know, the backroom deals, the smoke-filled rooms where people are doing these things. And we, we assume that that's what politics is, and we say we don't want to have anything to do with that. But there's a second kind of politics that we are also involved with. A way to call it is personal politics. Oh. And each of us are involved in this every day. Uh, as a matter of fact, a, a friend of mine once paraphrased Jesus and said, where two or three are gathered together, you have politics. Um, 
Now, I, I happen to have seen this last week. Um, I was working, let me see if I have, oh yeah. Here, here's, here's what, let me define this first and then I'll give you the illustration. Every day we live and work with others, right? We wake up, we have with family or we go to work, we're involved with people every day. And in every relationship, everyone has wants and interests. Sometimes we're aware of our interests, sometimes we're not. It could be something we want to eat. It could be a particular color we want a room painted. It could be we want people to get out of our way when we're driving on the roads. We have all kinds of wants and interests. And the fact is, is that we will promote our wants and interests using whatever influence and resources are available. That means we consciously or unconsciously think that our interests are probably what's best for everybody. And therefore, we're going to argue for or lobby for our interests and our concerns. Like I said, now I saw this last week. I was working last week in the nursery. And um, let's see if I get this thing off. There you go. Um, and it was really fun. I had a great time working in the nursery. But I saw political activity happening all over the place in there. I mean, this was one set of parents came in and they dropped off their daughter. And it took their daughter somewhere between 2.5 to 3 seconds before she realized that she had been dropped off. And she didn't really like that, and she wanted comfort. She wanted her mommy and daddy, but at least she wanted comfort. And so I swept in and grabbed up the baby and held that baby, probably rocked that baby and sang to her and talked with her for about 20 minutes until she had calmed down and was more relaxed and more acclimated to the situation, but she knew what she wanted, and you see, if she didn't get it, and you could see it on her face immediately about, like I said, after her parents dropped her off, it started to contort and turn, and you could see that before too long, she was going to start crying. That's the power that she had available. If I start crying, maybe I'll get what I want. So she was going to use what she had available, the resources available, to get what she wanted. Now, there's another little boy in the, in the nursery, and I'm going to go ahead and name him because I love him so much, this little Charlie Mahon. And, you know, Charlie's parents are young life directors, okay? And, uh, and so you can imagine that Charlie, and I love Charlie to death. I've known him since he was just a baby. And Charlie loves fun because, you know, his, his parents are young life directors, and he loves fun. So I'll tell you, Charlie got in there, and he wanted to look for fun. And before too long, he saw the swing. And he was over to the swing and up in the swing and starting to swing before anybody could even get to him and strap him in. You see, he knew what he wanted, and he exerted his authority, he exerted his power, the influence that he had to be able to get that. Now, that's what's called personal politics. And we're all involved in that, negotiating our wants and interests with the capacity we have, the authority we have, the resources we have to do that. Okay, now, so there's organizational politics and there's personal politics. What does the Bible say about how we should handle these? What we, want, what we want to look at first this morning is organizational politics. And I want us to look at Daniel in the Old Testament as an example of how to handle organizational politics because we all experience this in various aspects of our lives. Now, you have to understand that Daniel was brought to Babylon as an exile from Israel as a teenager, probably as a very young teenager. Some people say anywhere between 12 to 15 years old was the age of Daniel when he and his friends were brought from Israel because Babylon had taken over Israel and they took a group of exiles back to Babylon 
to become their servants of the king. And he served in Babylon, and then the next country that took over Babylon, he served in organizational political environments for about 65 years. Now, interestingly enough, uh, what we're going to look at this morning is, uh, in the book of Daniel, there's what I would call the tale of three kings, the three kings that Daniel worked under while he was in this capacity for these 65 years. The first one's name is Nebuchadnezzar, and he was the king of Babylon when Israel was destroyed and taken over. The second is Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar's son. And then Darius was the head of the Medo-Persian Empire that defeated Babylon. There is your history lesson for your ancient Near East history for the morning, okay? But these are the, the kings that, that, that uh, Daniel had to work with. Remember, he's brought to Babylon with his friends, taken away from his home and his family. And uh, the first story of the first king is Nebuchadnezzar. And hopefully this isn't too small. Now, you have to understand that the problem was Nebuchadnezzar was probably the most powerful king in all of the earth. He was the ruler of the the greatest, most powerful nation. And Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in the story of Daniel, had two different dreams that frustrated him a great deal. He couldn't understand them. He called in his his wise men, his soothsayers, and asked them to interpret the dream one time and then a few years later a second dream. And when they couldn't interpret it for him, Nebuchadnezzar was so mad he said, well, I'm going to have all of you killed. Well, by that time, Daniel had become one of the wise men, but he was talking to the servant that was sent to kill all the wise men. And he said, no, no, wait a minute. It says in Daniel 2.14 that Daniel replied with prudence and discretion. He said, tell me what the problem is. Let's see what we can do about it. The man explained that the king had this troubling dream. And Daniel said to his friends, his buddies, who came with him from Israel, to seek the mercy from the God of heaven. They said, he said to the servant, he said, Give us a little bit of time to think about this. Don't kill everybody yet. And then he told his friends, would you pray with me about this? Let's see if God will answer us and help us understand what the king's dream is and what it means. Well, interestingly enough, the mystery was revealed in chapter 219 to Daniel. And what Daniel's response was, wasn't, man, I'm so cool. Man, I know what's going on. Daniel's response was that he blessed the God of heaven. So this activity was steeped with he and his friends praying. And then what happened is he went and told the king about the mystery. He went and said, I'll give you the answer to what your your dream is and what it means. But I want you to make sure that you know that there's a God in heaven who has revealed these mysteries. He's made known to you what will be in the latter days. See, David took the opportunity to say, listen, don't Look at me as the great wise man. Almighty God is the one who has given us an answer here. Okay? And after he explains it to the king, in verse 45, what Daniel said is, A great king has made known to the king what shall be after this. So this is how Daniel handled the situation. And as a result, he was sustained as one of the wise men. And also as a result, the rest of the wise men were not killed. And you can understand and appreciate the fact that Daniel's uh, authority in the kingdom rose because of what God did for him. Now, then later on, 
Nebuchadnezzar had another dream, and it was a dream not so much about world history, but specifically about Nebuchadnezzar's leadership. And without getting into the dream, basically what, it, what, he, what, what God communicated to him through the dream was, watch, you have become arrogant in your leadership. You've become arrogant in your power, and I'm going to have to humble you. And as Daniel began to understand the dream that the king related to him, Daniel's response to the king was this in chapter 4. O king, let my counsel be acceptable to to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now the sad fact is, is that Nebuchadnezzar did not humble himself. And the result was that God humbled him for a period of time But at the end of that, when he came back into his uh, sanity and was restored to his kingship, he called his entire nation to respect and worship the God of Daniel. So we see in Daniel's life with Nebuchadnezzar a, a real respect and yet at the same time a boldness to pray and to be engaged and to talk about the role that Almighty God had in the circumstances. Now, Nebuchadnezzar moved off the scene, and his son Belshazzar became king. And interestingly enough, just like when you have a change of uh, administrations in the presidency, and uh, the the old leaders generally are put put aside, and the new president brings in his advisors and his his new cabinet and, and, and everyone involved in that government, Daniel was kind of put aside. Uh, by Belshazzar when he became president. Uh, And yet at the same time, Belshazzar has an experience. It wasn't a dream this time. Uh, We have a phrase that comes out of Belshazzar's experience. They're having a party together. I mean, we're talking a major party that Belshazzar's throwing in the kingship, and they're having a great time drinking, and and, and they even took the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the cups and the instruments that they had brought from Jerusalem to Babylon, and they were using that for their, for their, to hold their wine for their party. And they were getting more and more drunk. And suddenly in the midst of their drunken stupors, they look and they saw a hand that literally wrote into the plaster on the wall a message. That sobered them up a little bit. Okay? And, and, they, and, and they said, well, what does it mean? And they're turning to each other. What does it mean? Do you know what it means? I don't know what it means. Well, let's bring in the wise men, all of our counselors. And none of the wise men could figure out what it is. Interestingly enough, isn't this the way it often goes in marriage? The queen comes to Daniel and says, oh, we have a problem. She apparently hadn't been involved in the party. But she says to the king, you know, there's this guy who your father really looked to and respected, who gave your father understanding. Maybe he could help us in the situation. So they scurry around until they find Daniel. They bring him into the party, and they say to him, basically, you give me the interpretation of what you see up there on the wall, and I'm going to make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Now, you'd think Daniel was saying, well, gosh, what a great opportunity for me to kind of get back into the power environment, right? No, what, what Daniel said was this. He said, first of all, let your gifts be for yourself. I, I'm really not interested in all the gifts you're talking about giving to me. But I am interested in letting you know what this means. 
You see, he says to Belshazzar, your father learned the hard way that the most high God rules over the kingdom of mankind. And as a matter of fact, you knew about this, but you haven't humbled your heart. You knew what happened to your father, but you've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. So let me tell you what this handwriting on the wall says. It says your kingdom's going to fall. You're going to be defeated. And interestingly enough, that very night, the Medo-Persians snuck into Babylon and destroyed Babylon and took it over. And so what he said to Belshazzar took place. As the Medo-Persians came in, there's a new king and a new um, authority over all of the known world at that time. And his name was Darius. Now, maybe you want to name that Darius, but actually it's Darius. I learned that in college when I said it wrong. Um, And King Darius became the king, and um, he set up his government. He set up over all the lands. And in order to do that, he set up kind of like 120 states or, or territories And he put a governor over each territory. And then he had three leaders or three uh, presidents that ruled over those governors. So he had a hierarchy set up. He was the ultimate king. He had three presidents and then 120 uh, of the governors. And he had made Daniel one of the three presidents. And what it says in, in, uh, in Daniel is that Daniel did so well that the king wanted to make him over, place him over all the kingdom. Now, you can just imagine for a moment how the other two presidents and 120 governors felt about the fact that Daniel was going to be made ruler over all the nation, only accountable to Darius. They didn't like that. They were trying to figure, I mean, again, this is a political environment, right? And they're jealous. And so they began plotting together and saying, how can we, how can we bring Daniel down? How can we keep him from being king over us and ruling over us? And they searched and they searched. They couldn't find anything in Daniel's background and his decisions. They went through, you know, his his hard drive and they checked out all. They checked everything out. They couldn't find anything except they knew that Daniel was a follower of the living God. And he had that reputation. And they said, this is how we can get to Daniel. So they very craftily went to Darius and played on his pride and and said, we want you to pass a law that if anyone in your whole kingdom prays to any god or man other than you, Darius, for 30 days, that that person will be thrown into the lion's den. Of course, we know Daniel in the lion's den, but this is why. We're going to be thrown into the lion's den if they pray to any god or any man besides you, Darius, and of course, Darius thought, hey, it's pretty cool. And he didn't think about the unintended consequences of what the law might make. Hmm, sounds familiar, doesn't it? And so he passes the law, and Daniel, when he knew that the document had been signed, he went home, he opened the windows towards Jerusalem, he got down on his knees, and he prayed. An example of the scriptures of Peaceful disobedience to the law when it went against God's law. And you know the story. What happened is Daniel 
is discovered because they're checking it out. This is a trap laid for them. And they bring it to the king and they say, hey, king, you know that law you signed? Well, Daniel's been praying to a different god. And of course, Darius is heartbroken because he loves Daniel. He loves the work he's been doing for him. He's distressed. And he goes to Daniel and says, well, we've got to follow the law, but perhaps your God will deliver you. May, may your God deliver you. And you know the rest of the story. Daniel goes in the lion's den. Their mouths are closed. They come back and get him the next day. The king says, are you there, Daniel? Daniel says, everything's cool. They bring him up out of the lion's den, and they take the 120 governors and the two, two uh, presidents, and they throw them in the lion's den, and they're wiped out. Okay? So that's the, the story. And except to know that Darius's response at the end was to send a declaration out to the kingdom to say, tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. Okay, so there we see Daniel. Now, what can we pick up? What can we learn from Daniel about dealing with organizational politics, whether it's in your job, whether it's local governmental politics, whether it's the neighborhood community group, whatever it is, how can we, what do we, can we learn from Daniel? Well, here's some things we need to recognize. First, that Daniel was faithful, hardworking, and trustworthy as a citizen and as an employee. That he really was faithful, that someone, that his employer, that, that, that the king could depend upon, that he could trust, that he was there for the good of the king and, the, and for God's glory, which was a, the service of, of the country. The second thing that, they, that we can learn from Daniel is that he tactfully shared his dependence upon God. At the right time, in the right places, under the right circumstances, Daniel was able to open up his mouth and talk about his God. He didn't do it by going around and just handing tracts out to people all the time. Not that there's anything wrong with tracts, but, but just he didn't bludgeon people with his faith. But at the right time, he tactfully used the opportunities he had to talk about his dependence upon God. The third thing is, Daniel's priority was faithfulness to God over faithfulness to the civil government, even to the point of civil disobedience. Now, that doesn't mean that Daniel was going around just sticking it to the government all the time, not by any means. We remember he was a faithful, hardworking, trustworthy citizen. But his first priority was always to God and his revealed word. So even as a young man, you might know the story at the very beginning of Daniel, when he was commanded to eat the king's food, Nebuchadnezzar's food, and it was against their law, they creatively thought through a way to be able to work around that. But under the circumstance of praying, no, I have to pray to the living God. My first allegiance is to him. If I'm going to be a faithful worker for you, I have to put my first allegiance to the living God. And then the final thing, Daniel's hope was in God's purposes in the world, not in his own advancement or in political gamesmanship. He wouldn't play the game that Darius's other servants wanted him to play and refused to pray to his God. He wouldn't play the game with Belshazzar and say, yeah, I'm going to use you to exalt myself. He was there first and foremost to honor Christ, to honor God, his understanding of God who was who was the father of Christ, and to serve his God responsibly in the kingdom. So, what kind of applications can we have out of that? Well, 
The first thing we need to understand is that we are responsible to be dependable citizens. Jesus said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, and render under God what is God's. That means we, we are called to be responsible citizens. The second thing is, we are responsible, as we already saw this morning, to pray for those who are in leadership. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And that's something God calls all believers to. The third thing we need to understand is that we are responsible first to seek His kingdom and His righteousness. Jesus said that, didn't He? In Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That is our primary motivation. The fourth thing we need to understand is that our hope, our desires, will never be met and satisfied by human agency. That regardless of how much we work, regardless of how many people we get in the office that we want to put in the office, as Bob Flayharts told us men who were at the men's retreat two weeks ago, we're in a broken world. And we're living broken lives because we're broken people. And because that's the case, no human being is going to satisfy us. They will all disappoint us. So we can't place our hope in those agencies. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. I said there's a second kind of politics. We're not going to spend as much time on this, except we saw that that is the negotiation of our own interests with our available resources and influence. Now, here's the key that we have to ask, the question we have to ask, literally almost in every situation that we find ourselves. Whose interests are supposed to take priority here? Whose interests are supposed to take priority? Now, let me just tell you one story of a friend of mine uh, to kind of illustrate the struggle. Okay, this is a friend of mine. I've known him for years and years. He, he recently started a new job. He's been in his job less than six months, okay? He's in, a, he's in a responsible position in his organization. He's not at the top, but he's down at the next tier, okay? And, um, and he was coming to me and talking to me and complaining about the fact that in their company, they're facing some pretty important decisions. And he had spoken with the the, the, uh, the head of the organization and that the, the head's consultants and advisors numerous times about his opinion about the dis- particular decision that was being made. And he was coming to me and complaining because his opinion wasn't being enacted. They weren't taking his opinion and acting on it. As a matter of fact, the senior leaders were seeming to go in a very different direction. And what he was saying to me was, why did they hire me if they weren't going to respect my advice? And after talking for a few minutes, I said, you know something? I know that they, know, they respect you. I had been one of, his, uh, uh, one of the people they talked to about the possibility of hiring him. I said, I know they respect you, but here's the key. You haven't earned yet the right to be heard. You haven't been in the system long enough to develop relationship capital so that they would run with your ideas. And they've hung together and been together for quite a long time, and they've gone through a lot of pain together. And you shouldn't take offense at the fact that your opinions aren't immediately being picked up and running with your opinions because 
they can't trust you as much yet. You haven't been there long enough. You need to develop relationship capital. Now, I don't know the circumstances that you find yourself in, whether it's in your family or in your neighborhood, wherever else, but here's some questions that we need to ask ourselves. What are my interests? Lots of times we act on the basis of of the interests that we have, but we don't even recognize them. We don't even acknowledge the fact that this is our interest. How do those interests square with the interests of Jesus Christ? Another question we can ask ourselves is, what are the interests of others? How are they seeking to promote their interests, and how am I seeking to promote mine? And as a believer in Christ, what are the interests of Jesus? I find it interesting in in Philippians 2.21 that Paul is writing to the Philippians, but he makes this commentary about Timothy. He doesn't, he's not putting down the others, but he said, you know something? He said, in this particular situation, they are all seeking their own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ. He's saying, I really, I really highly regard Timothy because he places Jesus' interests above his own. And, and those are some questions we really have to ask ourselves. What are my interests? What are the interests of others? How important is it for me to get my way? More importantly, what are the interests of Jesus? We have to reflect on these things. Bottom line, Jesus is Lord. And as, as I seek significance and hope in the idol of politics, personal or organizational, I will be disappointed and disillusioned. Even if I get my own way, it's not going to give me the satisfaction I think it will. But as I seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, through that I will experience God's peace and God's hope and a sense of completion and fulfillment I won't get even if I get my own way. Way back in 1976, we celebrated as a nation the thing called the Bicentennial, our 200th anniversary. And uh, for those of us who are old enough to remember, there was a great celebration and all kinds of activities in the summer, particularly around Washington, D.C. And one of the activities around the weekend, the July 4th period of time, was a, a worship service, kind of a God and country thing, at the Lincoln Memorial. But they asked Billy Graham if he would come and speak at that service. And a, friend, a bunch of friends of mine and I went down there. We were living in D.C., and I'll never forget the first words out of Billy Graham's mouth. And, and I can't promise you that this is an exact quote, but it's pretty close. Billy Graham stood up there and said this. I am a Christian. I am a citizen of two kingdoms, the United States of America and the kingdom of God. Both spheres, in both spheres I have responsibilities. But the kingdom of God always overrules the kingdoms of this world and must always overrule and be the first in my loyalty and obedience. This is the call we have as Christians. Kingdoms of this world, kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Responsible citizens, but seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness.
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for the privileges that you've given us in this kingdom called the United States of America. Thank you for the awesome freedoms we have here that people around the world long to have experienced, long to come here to experience. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would constantly keep in front of us that our first loyalty is to you. And that as we can be loyal to you, we will be responsible citizens in this country. Father, help us to understand what it means to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and to understand all these other things will be added to it. We pray, Father, for your mercy in these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Even as we reflect on these things, this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's table, which is an opportunity to acknowledge his lordship, that he is first in our lives. As usual, on this side of the room, we have tables set up. This time we have two, one down here next to the exit sign, one up top at the exit there, and there's grape juice on this side. Over on this side, we have one here and at the top, and they have, uh, both have wine. And in a few moments, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I'll invite you to, to go and to, to take the Lord's table, first his bread and then his cup, to dip the bread into the cup, and to remember that Jesus said, you do this in remembrance of me. Really, by doing this, you're declaring to the watching world that he is Lord, not just of the world, but Lord over your life personally. On the light, night in which our Lord was betrayed, he took bread, and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, he took the cup, and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my name. Take this, and as often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me, for as often Paul says later, as often as we eat this bread, we drink this cup, we remember the Lord until he comes. Through these common elements, God ministers by his spirit to us, reminding us of his grace for us and his calling upon our lives. Let's pray now and ask the Father, set these elements aside for us. Lord Jesus, we know that this is common bread and common juice, wine. And yet, Lord, we pray now that you'll take them from the common and, and set them aside for the uncommon, that through your Holy Spirit, you would minister to us in these elements. Remind us that we are your children, that we are beloved by you. You sacrificed Jesus on our behalf. Remind us that your spirit is in our lives and that we've experienced the forgiveness of sins. That we're cleansed from unrighteousness. Remind us, Lord, that we are yours and we are called to live for you in our lives. And Father, I pray for those who are here this morning who maybe they've been around religion all their life, but they've never come into a personal faith with you. Lord, I pray that as they recognize that this is not their Supper, 
that you would work in their hearts and that even in this time they might come to understand what it means to submit to your lordship and to follow you. So thank you, Lord, for this cup and bread. Father, minister to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a blessing that God gives to us through his Holy Spirit. It is my privilege to share with you. May the love of God the Father, may the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, each of you, and be upon you and abide upon you this week. God bless you. Have a great week.